Welcome to the pulpit ministry of Christ Community Church in South Florida, aiming to make, mature, and multiply disciples by preaching and teaching God's Word based on the sufficiency of Scripture. And now, let's join Pastor Bernie Diaz for the message. I have a question about the Christ today. You know, when you talk about doctrine, which is teaching, and the Christian faith, I try to help you organize your thinking about what's in the Bible, and most pastors, preachers, theologians do, by organizing what we preach and teach, and we put things in certain categories to help you organize your thoughts. For instance, there are somewhat gray ethical issues where it says we have Christian liberty, freedom to make choices to glorify God. Your choices may look a little bit different than a another brother and sister in Christ. You might call those what we call dinner table doctrines, right? These are doctrines, issues you can sit down and have a meal and coffee over and go back and forth with, kind of ping-pong it. You have your convictions, but everybody knows that these are matters of personal conviction. It might be things like what you eat or drink, what you wear, um, what holidays you observe, places you go, media consumption, things like that. And uh, it might be, in terms of prioritizing issues, what we call third order, okay? Then you have another category. Uh, there are issues or doctrines clearer to discern, maybe of greater importance even in conviction to the Christian church, Christian life. You might call it a picket fence doctrine. A picket fence, you know, you're, there's a separation between neighbors. Can't get too close, but you get fairly close. You can see through and you can see over the fence and have a conversation and and that might be, uh, in our day and age, a mode of baptism, how you do that, how you observe the Lord's Supper, uh, the signs and wonder gifts of the Holy Spirit, the order of the end times, how that's all going to shake out, which we'll be discussing soon from Mark's Gospel. And then you have what's on the first order of the highest priority is what we would call a brick wall doctrine, a brick wall. That's That's first order because they define our faith and have been for centuries. I often call them hills to die on. If you are not familiar with military metaphors, you might say, what's a hill to die on? Um, if you're thinking big hills and mountains in South Florida, there's only one. I call it Mount Boca. It's actually a trash fill, but it's kind of like it's close as you get to a mountain here. So think about charging that hill, taking that hill. What does that mean? It's just an issue that you pursue with your wholehearted conviction. Uh, in other words, you're willing to sacrifice, die upon that hill. In this case, the hill is an issue or a doctrine worth fighting for. You don't compromise. So let me ask you, if you had to pick a hill to die on that really divides people in the Christian faith, you would hold to it no matter what. What would it be? Talk to me, church. Give me a doctrine. Give me an essential. What's that? Okay, abortion, that's interesting. I mean, the word abortion isn't even found in the Bible. But we know where God stands on it, don't we? Hand back here. Was that you, Yessie? Oh, it was Bianca? Oh, no, it was Allie. God's word is an authority. Yeah, that like the, the inerrancy of Scripture. There's no errors or mistakes in the Bible. That would be, I think, a hill to die on. James. The deity of Christ. Oh, you stole my thunder. I guess I have to close in prayer. Thank you very little. No, that's, that's good. John Mark? 
You took yours too. Oh, you're good. You go to a church that likes the Bible, I think. Okay. Uh, those are some. How about the, how about the virgin birth? All right, that's a big one. The atonement, the sacrifice of Christ, substitutionary, right? But if you had to pick one of the Christian faith, one doctrine that's the, maybe the most contested, the most controversial, difficult to believe for most lost or unredeemed people, I think is the one that a couple of our folks mentioned, where it's a hill to die on in either direction, and that would be the deity or the divinity of Jesus Christ, and that simply means the idea that Jesus is God in the flesh. A lot of people don't like that. Many lost people find that doctrine to be objectionable, if not inconceivable. How can God be a God and a man? I mean, and this hill is so big, folks. The wall's so strong on it that it has given birth to false religions, pseudo-Christian cults like Mormonism, the Jehovah's Witnesses. They believe Jesus is a created being. They just can't comprehend that God could be God in the flesh. They can't deal with it. Um, and you would think, though, the more access they have to God's revelation, you would get that right. And our text today kind of illuminates this wall and is actually, you're going to see, part of the hill that we die on here. We're talking about the question of the Christ, meaning Christ is Messiah. He's the Messiah to the Jews. Those people at that time of Christ had the greatest access to God's word. And what we're going to see is the Lord's going to put into action another saying that we've been talking about lately. Brother Alex is, is really good with this phrase, putting a pebble in the shoe. Have you ever had a pebble in your shoe before or in Bible times in your sandal? You know, it's uncomfortable. You can't wait to get it out. In other words, it's something irritating, something bothersome you have to deal with. And that's kind of what the Lord's going to do here. The way he does it is he's going to reveal his true identity with a question. You know, superheroes, some would never reveal their true identity, right? But the Lord is our hero. He's going to reveal his identity here. And it happens when Jesus and the religious leaders of Israel, you're going to remember they've been going toe-to-toe -to -toe here on Tuesday of the Passion Week with all these, con these confrontations, these conflicts on the temple grounds. That covers all of chapters 12 and 13. And Jesus has been teaching here and dealing with these questions and these conflicts like paying taxes to Caesar. What's our role with government? Uh, the resurrection. Last time we talked about our memory verse this month, the greatest command in all the Hebrew law. And so the leaders in the Sanhedrin, they would ask him these questions in this attempt to trip him up, to trap him into saying or doing something incriminating. Because they hate him. Just face it, they hate him and they want to get rid of him. And our Lord's response then would often come back in a series of rhetorical questions. Should be self-evident answers. And he's really doing that to show them how ignorant they are of his mission, of his ministry, as well as the kingdom of God. And it's all capped off here, I think, in a sense, in this really short text where Jesus this time takes the initiative to ask the questions. He's the interrogator now. And, and he does this by opening a door and giving a, as clear a picture to a Jew of his identity, his true identity, than at any other time in his ministry. Because he's now of the view that now is the time. Now is the time. This is the question of the Christ. It's really an invitation 
to investigation. Or, in other words, it's time to get the pebble in the shoe and out of the shoe. Great example for us to keep in mind, by the way, about how to share your faith. Verse 35, and as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? So he begins like an apologist. He's his own best defender of his identity with a question. Many people are gathered around there at the temple, but this is really directed at the Pharisees. Because according to Matthew, he quotes the Lord this way. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Right? He's throwing it out there. He wants them to come to grips with the fact that he is their long-promised Messiah. And they said to him, they answered, well, the son of David. That would be the classic common answer for a Jew, particularly a religious expert or like a lawyer, a scribe. These Jews loved David. He was their greatest king of all, their beloved king of Israel. He was even bigger than the Queen of Elizabeth, the Queen of England that just passed, right? And their expectation was that not only would Messiah in the Hebrew Mashiach or Christos, where we get Christ from the Greek, that means he's the anointed or chosen one of God. They expected that he would be a son or a descendant of David, that he would be a king, he'd be a conquering warrior, he'd come into Rome, wipe out that empire and all of Israel's enemies like David did before. They liked that, not only that, they knew that David was a human being like you and me. He wasn't supernatural. So they figured the Messiah would have to be as well. This is the type of Messiah they wanted. This is the one they expected, kind of, would be someone like that. That idea was always a stumbling block to the Jews when they were confronted with Jesus. Still is today. I mean, face it. He's a carpenter's son from little old Nazareth meek prophet. He wasn't a political revolutionary like they might have expected. He'd already made three predictions he was going to die at the hands of the Romans and then resurrect. Why would he do that? Even though he had done signs and wonders with supernatural powers, these religious leaders, they don't get all that. Why? Because their understanding of Messiah was incomplete, was limited. They didn't know what to do with Jesus. Most of the world still doesn't know what to do with Jesus. They know who he is. They know things about him, but they don't know what to do with him. I mean, just 48 hours before, mind you, the Lord had ridden into town, Palm Sunday. The people were praising him, worshiping him, crowning him as a king. It says in chapter 11, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. So the people and the Pharisees, they want to see a crown. Jesus is talking about a cross. Hmm. How can this man be the son of David? In Matthew, Jesus was implying that, yes, Messiah is the son of David. And he says, well, how is that possible? How can the Messiah be a son of David if David in Psalm 110 is saying, Lord to my Lord? Adonai, Lord. That's a familiar title for Yahweh is God the Father. Now, to be clear, the Lord wasn't denying the fact with this question that Messiah would come from David. No, they, they all knew 
that Messiah would be part of the Davidic line, and that's what we call the Davidic covenant, that agreement God had with Israel. It says in the middle of 2 Samuel 7, God talking to David, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. What they seem to overlook, though, is the fact that, yes, the covenant with David was unconditional. God would make sure it happened. He would guarantee a Davidic king on the throne forever. The covenant promise had to be fulfilled by a perfectly obedient king. There's only been one of those. The New Testament tells us this is Jesus of Nazareth. And there are at least 16 Old Testament scriptures that speak to the fact that the Davidic roots are the seed of Messiah. Okay? What Jesus, though, is doing, he's taking their understanding now to a next level. He's going to blow their minds with the full revelation of who the Messiah is. He's going to tell them he's no ordinary human being. The fact is, Messiah is divine. He is deity. And some of the Jews knew, even if not by word, Jesus had made this argument already with his ministry, his works already. And they're just not going to have it. Remember he healed a paralytic early in his ministry, one brought down through the roof? And Jesus dared forgive his sins. So they called him a blasphemer with a God complex. And then in John 10, after he said he was the good shepherd, he said, I and the Father are one. Whoa. That's pretty clear what that means and implies, right? And what was their reaction, the Jews, to that? They picked up stones to kill him. And then Jesus replied to that, which of my works are you going to stone me for? And they came back, oh, it's not for a good work that, you're gonna, that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Listen, because you, being a man, make yourself God. They were right. He was making himself God. There's nothing veiled there. Absolutely. These religious leaders in Israel, they knew Jesus was claiming a particular identity. And rather than debate this, Jesus, back in our text, he just sticks the pebble in the shoe, verse 36, back in Mark 12. So he says, is Christ the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at your right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If you were in a court of law, we'd say Jesus was leading the witness. And he is, for sure. Uh, he's quoting from Psalm 10, 110, verse 1 which happens to be, by the way, the most often quoted Old Testament text in all the New Testament. It's mentioned at least 30 times. No coincidence. He's speaking, Jesus is speaking their language. He's saying, okay, I'm going to show you who I am by the words of your favorite king, David. Right? This is what's called a messianic psalm. And it begins, this is a psalm of David. David wrote this. And how is it messianic? He's saying, the Lord said... So the Lord is talking to my Lord. You've got the Lord talking to the Lord. Huh. Is God talking to himself? I mean, what does David have to do with this anyway? How can the Messiah be David's son and David's Lord at the same time? There's only one way. The Messiah, the Christ, 
has to be the eternal God who becomes man. God's talking to God in this conversation in Psalm 110. He has to be. As per all the Old Testament prophecies, right? Remember Isaiah 9? We talk about it a lot around Christmas time and elsewhere. Yahweh God becoming a child who is born, a son given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, what? Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So you've got a Messiah to be born to the nation of Israel, a son given, a child born, and you can call him Mighty God and Everlasting Father. How about that for a head-scratcher? But Micah also tells us the Messiah was going to be born in the same little town of Bethlehem David came from, right? Jesus, what he's trying to do is connect all these dots for them with this psalm. He's teaching them there that David is saying that Messiah is going to be God and man. As eternal God, Messiah is David's Lord, but as a man, he's David's son in that line. That might be hard to get when you read that at first glance or when you just first heard it in English. It makes a little more sense in Hebrew because even in Greek, Psalm 110 reads Lord. You see capital L, small O-R-D. That comes from kurios, Lord. Kurios said to my kurios. But in the original Hebrew, David was inspired by God to write Psalm 110. You see it differently. We have a a diagram of that or just we have it on the screen here where you see a name talking to a title or an office as if two persons are engaging in conversation you see there the Lord my Lord you see the Hebrew characters and I'm sorry if they're not completely correct my sister Claudia she's studying Hebrew you see the uppercase for the Lord when you see the uppercase of Lord particularly in the Old Testament all capital letters that is where we get Yahweh, which would then be pronounced as Yehovah, Jehovah. So the Lord, speaking to my Lord, the first Lord is Jehovah, who's speaking to, when you see Lord, capital L, lowercase letters, it is from the Hebrew Adonai. Adonai is very commonly used as the title, the office of God. So God, Jehovah, is speaking to the Lord God, Adonai, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how you begin to connect some dots here. So the Hebrew is very, very helpful here. And the New Testament, folks, is key here to clarifying the Old Testament too. It, it, it always is. The New Testament is what we call progressive revelation. Revelation, the word progresses, becomes more clear as you read it in the Spirit, go on and you learn it. And in fact, you see, this is why Psalm 110 is used so often in the New Testament. Because the New Testament writers are saying, look, it was introduced back here. Now I'm going to give you its full explanation. For instance, in the book of Acts, chapter 2 at Pentecost, Peter preaching his first sermon. The church is just being birthed. He's preaching to the Jews, right, in a word of condemnation, really. Because they're not seeing this messianic prophecy, and they're about to, and, and they just executed their Messiah. And Peter says this For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, here it is, 
the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord, Adonai, and Christ, whom, and this Jesus, whom you crucified. It's all coming together. Lord, Christ, Jesus. This is what's happening here. And Paul confirms this in 1 Corinthians 15. He uses the same psalm. You see it in Hebrews 1, Hebrews 10. And I'll tell you where the connection is really strong, too, is in Acts 7. The church's first martyr, Stephen, he's preaching as he's about to be stoned to death. He's convicting the Jews, and he quoted, he quoted God here, the Lord, and he says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Just picture that, right? Heaven, earth is my footstool. So the earth, the planet earth is God's footstool. He's giving that footstool to his son, the son of God. And then in another messianic psalm, Psalm 2, God the Father says to his only son, tie this all together, I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Just picture that, okay? The old Jewish way of saying the earth is my footstool. So this is a, he is stepping on it, meaning submission. The earth is submitted to God. It's underneath his feet. And God is saying, Jesus, that's for you. That footstool is now yours. And of course, in the second coming is when you're going to see he's going to break everything up with a rod of iron. He's coming back as a judge. So this is the church's classic, traditional confession of the ascension of the risen Christ, his enthronement, the fulfillment of of a, what's a prophetic invitation to Christ. Take your kingdom, okay? All that after the resurrection. So the father's saying, son, come sit up again next to me on the right hand of my throne, and the whole earth is going to be under your feet. That's what that's about. And that's going to be fully manifest in the second coming. Or in other words, Philippians 2. You should mark this in your Bible somewhere. Philippians 2, 9 to 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him, bestowed upon him the name that's above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is what? Lord Adonai to the glory of God the Father. And before we go any further about what David said in Psalm 110 in case you have any doubts about what David said remember David it says here is said it in the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit inspired David to write that scripture like he's inspired all the writers to write the rest of the Bible. And we know that, that David was with the Spirit, because in 1 Samuel 16, when the prophet's anointing David, it says, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Okay? And you have gospel writers like Luke and John, they tell us it's the Holy Spirit that reveals the truth to us. Like 1 Corinthians 12, Paul writes, No one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. You can't say it and mean it if you're not in the Spirit. You understand that? Because the Jews didn't. And why not? Well, you know why. Jesus already told them. John 5, And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. 
but you do not have his word abiding in you, staying in you, because whom he sent, him you do not believe. Jesus is saying, you're looking at God right in front of your eyes and you don't see it. Because you don't have my word in you. It's not in you. You're not in me. This is a supernatural thing we talked about many times. This is the idea of regeneration, the new birth, salvation, illumination. That all comes from the Spirit. The idea is this, folks. You first have to believe by faith before you understand everything. Okay? Look at back in the text, verse 37, the very end. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? Let's flesh that out. The answer is, again, Messiah. God-man from the line of David is also the eternal son of God, God incarnate. So Jesus, he's just taking these scribes through this process that he had done about a year before with the disciples, by the way. In Mark chapter 8, and this is very familiar to you when you hear it, Mark chapter 8, verse 27, the Lord Jesus went on with his disciples, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? So there's the question of the Christ again. And they told him, uh, John the Baptist. And some others say Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. And then Matthew adds, you are the Christ, the Son of God of the living God. To which Jesus said, to echo David in Psalm 110, he said, the Lord, yet human beings, your flesh did not reveal that to you. The Holy Spirit revealed that to you. Amen. And we could go several places, folks, to make the case for Christ. I'm going to take you a place where you wouldn't ordinarily think of starting, which is a starting place. The genealogy of Jesus. Particularly if you're talking to a Jew, this may be helpful. I know uh, Brother Vic is talking to a Jewish friend, trying to witness to him. And one of the reasons, by the way, to not skip over your reading, Bible reading plan or whatever, the genealogies of the Bible, they're there for times like this. They're there for texts like this. Because Matthew 1 gives the genealogy of Jesus, his, his bloodline, from both sides, by the way, of his earthly family, both Joseph and Mary. And in fact, there they connect back to Adam, Abraham. And guess who else? Matthew 1.1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of who? David, the son of Abraham. Verse 6. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. It goes on. Verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. From the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. That's not a coincidence Matthew has that. The Gospel of Matthew is known as the Gospel of the, of the King of the Jews. Matthew's making it very clear. Jew, read this. Read this. See, take a look. I'm arguing, Matthew says, I'm arguing that Jesus is the Christ and is the son of the living God, and here's the family connection on both sides of his earthly family. What do you think? In fact, the Bible says this, too. This is a big one. If you don't believe this truth, 
about the Christ, if you don't have the answer to the question of the Christ, you are literally an antichrist by definition. Really? That's strong, but it's true. 1 John 2. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. So, I began to make a case for the deity of Christ with the genealogy of Jesus. I could go to tons of prophecies. Psalm 110 we talked about. But to be practical, let's be practical, help you out here, you're going to run up against the person that says, look, I need a direct statement or I need to show me Jesus' character, his conduct, something from his actions, his attitude, where I could see he was God in the flesh. So you might put it this way. If God were to be a man, what would he look like? What would he be like? I would say he would look like and talk like God, if he were a man. Two basic fundamental qualities. How do you walk? How do you talk? So let's talk about it. If God became a man, he would talk like God, wouldn't he? Does that make sense? It is true, in the New Testament, Jesus never uttered the exact words, I am God, but he didn't need to because he made the claim to be God in many, many different ways and other words. And those who heard him knew exactly what he was talking about and what he meant, like these Jews that either wanted to stone him to death or throw him off a cliff, like when he went to Nazareth and quoted Isaiah and said, yeah, I'm the fulfillment of that prophecy. I'm the Messiah, here I am. And they were like, let's kill him. In John 8, Jesus says to the Pharisees, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. I am. That's pretty clear if you understand what I am is, which is the proper name God used to identify himself to God's people through Moses in the burning bush. I am, when you spell out the consonants and put them together, is Yahweh. So Jesus just said, I'm Yahweh. No matter, I mean, there's little surprise why they freaked out. And then six chapters later, same gospel, Thomas hears that Thursday night that Jesus was going to soon be leaving the disciples. He was going to go to the cross. And he's kind of like, don't go, don't go. And if you go, I want to follow you wherever you go. Just show me the way. And then, of course, Jesus says, yeah, okay. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then he adds this. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have what? Seen him. Whoa! I'd say that's pretty clear. That's pretty close to saying I'm God. You've seen me. You've seen God. And that had a great deal of impact because after the resurrection, Thomas touched, saw the risen Christ, fell to his knees and called out what? My Lord and my God. That's what he said to Jesus. I, I see now my Lord and my God. And again, I mentioned after he healed the paralytic, the Jews came after him. And he said, the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Who else in the Bible from the Old Testament on besides God can forgive sins? Anybody? None. No one. King David couldn't forgive sins. He never did that. And don't say a Catholic priest can forgive sins. That's not legit. 
not biblical. Only the Christ can. And along those lines in Acts 5, Peter preaching again says, God exalted him, Jesus, at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Jesus also, it's said of him, he is the one that will judge the living and the dead. Who else but God can do that? Who else has that authority? By the way, again, I said David couldn't do that. The Jew knew only God could do that. So if God were a man, he would talk like God. Secondly, he would walk like God. And I don't mean a particular style of walking. By walking, we mean lifestyle, living. That was the way you refer to it. This means that God as flesh would have to have lived a perfectly sinless, righteous life, right? Well, that's what happened. His own enemies could not find a single sin to pin on him. They admitted that. What they did was they called him a rebel. They fabricated some lies about him being king of the Jews so the Romans would come after him. But think, his power to conquer death, disease, demons, nature itself, it's all over the pages of the New Testament. For instance, when he calmed the Sea of Galilee, right, fed thousands from virtually nothing, one kid's little box lunch, I mean, who could do that? Who else would have the personhood and the power other than God to do this? And the Jews knew he did all this. They just blasphemed him. They would attribute it to some demonic power, right? Beelzebub. And it's funny, though, the demons knew who they were dealing with because they would see him as he was about to deal with them, and they would call him son of God. How about Paul linking Jesus to creation? Can anyone else have created the world besides God? He called, Paul called Jesus in Titus 2, our great God and Savior, he pointed out in Philippians, prior to his incarnation, Jesus existed in the form of God. And then picking, picking up on that, go to over to Hebrews, if you would. Hebrews chapter 1. Or you can just make a note. You're going to see this Psalm 110 kind of language here. God talking to God. Hebrews 1, verse 8. But of the Son, he, God, says, Your throne, O God is forever and ever the scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness therefore listen therefore god your god therefore god your god has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions god has anointed god verse 10 and then god continues to speak and you lord laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning and the heavens are the work of your hands. Are you, are you with me? Are you tracking here? Are you connecting all the dots? And this, this is exhaustive. I'm just giving you a quick little overview of all of the texts that speak to the identity of Jesus. We can't go more, we can't go on and finish this without two more from Paul. Colossians 1, the beginning of verse 15, starts. Paul talking about Christ. He is the image of the invisible God. Verse 16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. 
if I had the least bit of awareness, I, I would say, okay, that's pretty compelling. That's pretty strong. And then he followed that up in the next chapter, Paul, Colossians 2, about Jesus. He said, for in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells, makes itself at home bodily. Folks, this is a slam dunk, as we would say. Has to be. Which is explaining why Jesus was worshipped more than a dozen times in the New Testament. And by the way, only God can receive worship, as we heard today. And then finally, I'm going to save the best for last, maybe. The single clearest text of deity and divinity for the Lord Jesus. I would take you to the prologue, the introduction to John's Gospel, chapter 1. This is the one the cults have the most trouble with, where they've changed the Greek and English translation because the wording in the proper language, the original language is so clear. John 1.1, 1, 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Word, logos. It's where we get the word logo in English from. What does it mean? Why is John using this word that was so big to the Greeks and Jews had an understanding of it? Is because logos, to be a logos is to have the very mind, the very mouth, the very words of someone. The wisdom of someone. And that's what is being said about Jesus, who was with God eternally from the past. Skip down to, or continue. The word was with the word was with God. The word was God. Verse two, he was in the beginning with God. Verse three, all things. Here it is again, the creation thing. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. Skip down to verse fourteen, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Case closed, okay? Case for Christ closed right there. Should be. If we could use the phrase that's inarguable, can't be debated, that would be it right there if you understand the language. John is saying this Jesus that became flesh was with God, always with God, created everything like God, Listen, if God were a man, and he was, and he is, then this God-man is clearly Jesus Christ, Son of God, Son of Man. He talked, and he walked, and he lived like God on earth then, and when he returns, he is the sovereign, sinless, self-existent, eternal God in the flesh. I think the biblical evidence here is irrefutable. It's overwhelming, and there's nothing in reliable, extra-biblical, historical sources that has ever contradicted or disproved anything we've heard today. They try to make cases, but they can't. The case for Christ should be closed. And it would be for anyone who has eyes to see and ears to hear. Again, why do people don't get it? We know why. Because we deal with fallen friends and family all the time, don't we? This is a hill to die on. This is a brick wall doctrine. And it can't be broken for the true believer, for the follower of God. But it will be a brick wall for those that love the darkness 
rather than the light. The, never fall for the argument there's a lack of evidence for Jesus. There's overwhelming evidence for Jesus. People don't want to believe this because they don't want to believe it because they don't like what it plainly says. You understand that, right? Always. You're dealing with the heart. People that deny this deny it because if it's true, I am accountable to Jesus and God with my life. I'm responsible. That means there's a judge over my life, and I'd rather not have a judge over my life. It's that simple. It's a heart thing, not a mind thing. The excuses will be about the mind and the evidence. Don't fall for that. It's here. This is why God has to change this first so people get it. And this scribe and the other people listening to Jesus, look at the last phrase at the end of our text in verse 37. It's fascinating, the reaction. So how is he his son? How David calls himself, himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng, throng heard him gladly. This large crowd heard him gladly. It means they delighted with pleasure in hearing Jesus. That's all that it says. So you know people are in hell and going to hell, and they think Jesus is pretty cool, actually. Pretty cool character. You've seen the t-shirts, you know, Jesus is my homeboy, stuff like that, which I think really borders on blasphemy, no matter how well intended that might be. I don't think that reveals a real fear of God, but people enjoy reading about his words and about his life, but nothing more than that. I mean, I've even read interviews with celebrities and they've been asked, uh, from all the people of all history of all time, who would you most like to have dinner with? Jesus comes up all the time. But that's answer coming from unbelievers. And they're never going to get that chance. And you know, Pilate and Herod were both fascinated with Jesus. They really enjoyed listening to him. They really did. I mean, let's face it. Our Lord on earth, not talking about physical appearance, but he was very magnetic in personality. He was what we would call charismatic in the kind of secular sense of the term. He was a very compelling, very popular figure. In fact, H.G. Wells wrote this, I am a historian of the 20th century. I am not a believer, but I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all history, end quote. He's absolutely right. He is. But acknowledging that, the person of Jesus, his personality, admiring certain things about him, maybe his power, his preaching, in and of itself, that doesn't save you from your sins. Not at all. Head knowledge does not save you from judgment. Not at all. Only repentance towards God and faith in Christ, the same Jesus, the Christ does, by trusting in him as your Lord and Savior. So again, as I close, the biggest question of all has to be to this. Question of the Christ. You have to come up with an answer. And then what does that answer mean? What do you do with it? What do I do with Jesus? What do I do about Jesus? Don't leave him out of your conversations when you're talking. Too many of us are witnessing and we just talk about God, 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 God. You know why? Because that's easy. Because people, unbelievers like my wife and I were noticing the other day, just unbelievers say thank God all the time. 
That's just like a catchphrase. Anybody can say thank God. They don't know God. They don't even know who they're thanking. Get into Jesus. Say the name. And you know what? If you say the name enough, some people are going to get a little itchy around you. They're not going to like that too much. And you know what? I don't care. You got to say the name. I love what C.S. Lewis said about this. He said it really, really well. It deserves hearing again. Not the first time you've heard this here. But he nails it. A man who is merely a man said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else he is a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and what? God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. That's why it's a brick wall. It's a hill to die. And so you ask, why does this matter? Getting this question right? You know why. It's life and death. Question. Your eternal life is on the line. You want to be in heaven? You want to live eternally in joy and peace? Have abundant joy now? You have to believe that Jesus is the Christ. You don't? Fine. It's your choice. You will go to the place where there's wailing and gnashing of teeth forever. The choice is simple, and that's why we have this book, by the way, at the end of John's Gospel. You'll say, why did John write his Gospel? John tells us why. We were there some years back. It says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Let's pray, and when you pray, think in particular if you know someone about a Jewish person that you know, that you're friendly with. I have someone in mind right now, many of you know. He used to be a member in this church. He actually stepped away from the Lord and converted to Judaism. That pains me greatly. Not nearly as much as it pains his parents. Trust me. And he's a great young man. You know who I'm talking about. Many of you know who I'm talking about. We love him. And he's lost. And he needs to deal with this question. He needs to answer this question from here. So let's pray. Lord, we lift up our friends and family members, Jewish and otherwise, who are unable right now to see the plain truth of the Scriptures which you have chosen to reveal that your son is the son of God, the son of man, the God-man incarnate, and he is every bit as God as the Father and the Spirit in the triune Godhead. And that's why he is the perfect Lord and Savior 
for mankind. And we pray, Lord, that we can be able to take from what we've heard today, share it with others that we're speaking to, that we would get to the heart of the matter, the heart of the matter. You change the heart, but you use the proclamation of your word, your truth, the gospel, to save people. You didn't have to do it that way, but you chose to. You choose your people to share the truth because the word says faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. Lord, use us in that way. and Lord, we pray for our lost brothers and sisters in the faith. Some of them very religious, Lord. They acknowledge that there is one God and only one true God, but they do not know who that God really is and that he is one person, one being in essence, manifested in three different persons. Help them to understand, Lord, convict people in their conscience, move them to repentance and faith, open hearts, cause our friends and family to be born again, Lord God. Use us as vehicles, as tools to do that with your word so the word and the Spirit's power work together, Lord, as always. That's the miracle that happens every day when people are saved. We pray these things and all God's people said, Amen. Christ Community Church is a God-glorifying, Christ-exalting, and Bible-centered body of believers who love God and love people by making disciples of Jesus Christ. For more information on us and to learn how to give towards our media ministry, please go to our website at www.ChristComChurch.org. That's ChristComChurch.org. And look for the Giving tab at the top of the homepage.